Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Live from the Cheap Seats. This is your host, Matt Whitener, and I am happy to be back, man. It's been a couple of weeks since I last got a chance to check in with everybody, so um, good to be able to get back on the air. Uh, when we last left off, geez, when was the last time that we left off and got this thing off the ground? It had been uh, before the holiday, so it was before Christmas. And it was before the New Year, so Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for crossing over to this year with us once again. And um, it, 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 we're going to kind of pick up from where we uh, where we left off at. Uh, last time that we were here, we were looking at what was going to be coming up in, in the world of sports. We were looking at the uh, upcoming uh, national championship game and where the playoffs were going to be heading. And uh, we're finally there now. So we, we've gotten on the other end of that. We will be um, – Speaking this week with Anton Staley, the Black Red Sox fan, a good friend of the program, has been on a couple of times before. Good to have him back. We're going to be looking at the national championship game um, that's coming up this Monday with Ohio State and Oregon as well. We're going to look at a few guys that are starting to turn their back on college, and now they're headed towards the pros. Um, and, and in that, we're talking about the talents of Mr. Jameis Winston, most notably, who's entered, who's entered his name into the hat for the draft. Also this afternoon, we had um, Amani Cooper that was part of that Alabama team that actually had played in one of the best bowl games I've seen in a long time for um, for Alabama. He came up on the short end of the stick, but now he's going to be going for the uh, for the payday. So it all pays off in the end for him there, as well as uh, T.J. Yeldon. There's plenty of more that be headed out, but um, we're going to get to that all in a second here. Um, also, a little bit later, we're going to be looking at the uh, Major League Baseball Hall of Fame vote that came up this week. Um, always a, uh, uh, well, now, what do you call it at these days with that? It's, it's kind of a uh, testy situation with that, um, <laughs> how that goes about happening, who's worthy, who's not, who's supposed to be there, who isn't. It, it, it's almost become a thing where the debate has outweighed the um, the actual outcome of determining people who should be into the Hall of Fame. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll run through that as well here in a second. We'll be joined on the second half of the show with another regular guest of the show that is going to give us a little bit of context on it. I want to talk a little bit about the comparison for some guys and to look at where the um, where the Hall of Fame actually should be at if if, if it's doing the right thing as well and um, if, if we're actually ever going to be able to get it back on track and to see about how it is, how it can get back to where it should be. But um, that's enough of me rambling through there. Uh, a few things going on this week that before we get into the topic, before we join with our guests and whatnot here, that I want to look at, um, mainly in the shocking news of the afternoon. I don't know if anything is still shocking at this point, but the somehow the NFL came up saying that it was – Essentially, in in my mind, 
<laughs> wiping its hands even further, the Ray Rice situation, saying that there is no proof that the NFL ever saw the video of Ray Rice before it was brought out and led to the eventual um, actions and the trial of the uh, of 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 in the court of public opinion at least of Roger Goodell. It uh, saying that the NFL did not see that tape at all. Uh, in the words of Robert Mueller, who took it on took on that case and said concluded that there was substantial information about the incident even without the in-elevator video, indicting the need for a more thorough investigation. The NFL should have done more with the information that it had and should have taken additional steps to obtain the, the still available information about the February 15th incident. So that, so basically, they're saying, yeah, we should have done more. We should, they, 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 they were a little bit lazy about how they went about handling their business, but, you know, all things considered, uh, they did enough. Let's let it keep going. So I, I don't know what to say at this point. You know, is the is the NFL off the hook? Yeah, they've taken themselves off of it. But you know, as well, now you look at it and and you say, what was all this actually for? You know, it seemed like when it happened, it was going to be a pivotal moment where um, they were able to make a, take a stand on an issue that really matters outside of just football and really kind of changed the course of the view of the NFL, at least, about how much they care or what they really don't about the direction of their image and about where things can go as far as steering the NFL in a more popular light outside of just the entertainment value that it that it brings. But, um, you know, today kind of closes the door on this. There's still less high-profile issues that are out there that they still – need to address the Greg Hardy issue still lingers. Um, but at this point, I, I, don't, I don't really know where Adrian Peterson goes either. I, I guess that season will just kind of start off like that didn't happen as well. So who who knows what happens there? It, 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 it's kind of tough to ever really take too much of a moral stand on where the NFL is these days. But, um, you know, hey, it is what it is. Um, in on-field news, however, maybe more interesting, interestingly enough, uh, it, it was brought out that Aaron Rodgers has a, in, in a very funny verbiage as well, Aaron Rodgers has a slight tear in his calf muscle. I, I don't know. I've, I've never torn a calf. I've, I've never done anything to the tune that says, um, you know, hey, I, you you may have a tear in your leg. So I, I don't know what to say about whether that is a um, – how serious of a feeling that is, but I don't think you can slightly tear anything. You can I, – I, you know, I know you can get sore after you work out, you know, whatever like that, you know, lifting weights, there's a little tears in your muscle. But a slight tear in your calf of the variety that you take in the NFL and the way that Aaron Rodgers went down – when that injury occurred to him last weekend, I, I just don't know. How can he? How can it be said that he's going to go out there and that he's going to be the same player this week against the Dallas Cowboys it, it, with a with a torn leg? I mean, saying he may be far from 100%. Do you put your season in his hands still? You got to. I mean, if he can throw the ball, if he can go out there and play, you have to. The guy's going to probably be the um, – you know, he's probably going to end up being the NFL MVP this year uh, for for good reason as well. 
And he's going to go out there and he's going to have another, you know, he'll, he'll go out there and give it all he's got. But I think it's going to be an Eddie, an Eddie Lacy week. It's going to have to be an Eddie Lacy week because there's no way that you can go out there and tell him to take the risk or even attempt to throw the ball, um, you know, downfield that many times. So um, it, it's, it's, it is, it is tough to say what's going to come of that, but um we, we we will see how that goes. Um, we we're, we're waiting still for um, the Anton Staley on the line with us here. We're going to talk a little bit about the um, about the NFL. I'm mean, sorry about the national championship games coming up this week for the NCAA um, NCAA football that's uh, happening between Ohio State and the Oregon Ducks. Um, interesting thing enough to say there that shifting gear to college a little bit that Ohio State seems a little bit undeniable this year. I don't know. It's kind of strange. Like, they are really having the type of season where they're doubted, they're died up, they're held, held back. And it seems like, you know, you hear a lot about bulletin board material and about the fact that, you know, people say that that doesn't matter. Is that real? You know, people put out there, at the end of the day, you got to go out there and you just got to play. Um but they're playing with the type of purpose. Like, not only have they been reading the bulls and boards, man, they've been putting the stuff into action about it as well, too. Uh, it's been one of the most, the ultimate next man up experiences watching that team play this year. They, uh, it, it's been remarkable to think about the fact that coming into the year, you saw Braxton Miller go down, who was being touted as a Heisman Trophy contender, and had really led Ohio State to a brilliant year last year as well, too. And, you know, he's out the mix. You know, you go down to your next quarterback. And if you go into a season with the secondary, with your secondary quarterback, obviously how you're going to look at the um, – how you're going to look at that season is going to have a little bit watered down of a perspective. And, and I mean, and that's fair. It's fair to look at to, to look at and say that. But, you know, JT Barrett had a great year. You know, he came in, the, the freshman comes in, he, he, he operates the offense still with the same type of precision that you would expect for a guy that, that is a, as a quarterback playing a program of that tier. But to be able to step up, to be able to hold that team together and to be able to still guide it to be a one-loss team throughout most of the year, it was impressive. I mean, it was really impressive to see him work. But then, you know, going even further than that, when he goes down as well, you really have to start questioning, you know, uh, is is it in the cards for these guys? You know, is is this is it going to work out for them the way you expect it to? But lo and behold, it, it, they they go down to the point where Cardell Jones steps up next, who was the less heralded sophomore behind the freshman, and what does he do? He goes out and just becomes a machine himself. You know, he puts up 250 yards against Wisconsin in that route that they put on them and ran them out and ended their season. And then you, you keep pushing on even further. And then he puts numbers up against Alabama that, you know, he battled. It was an impressive thing to watch. And, and he's and he's got the touch on the deep ball to where there's no issues as far as that. He opens up the big play. He keeps it – Um, he, he keeps it – Relevant. He keeps everything uh, alive on the field as well. So I mean, it, it's, it's just impressive to see. And then you watch, um, you 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 see what they're able to do as far as competing on defense. They had good secondary play against Alabama. They they, they got after the quarterback. They they made 
the type of the things that you have to do to to interrupt a uh, an, an elite player like Marcus Mariota, who's the top player in college football this year. He's the Heisman Trophy winner. He's a guy that you know he's 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 that he's that double he's that double threat type of player that you say is um you know he he's he he's going out. He's thrown forty touchdowns. Only thrown three picks. I mean, he's, he's just everything. He's he's had one of the best seasons in in in, in college football that I can recall in recent years. Um, but the way that Ohio State's playing, it feels a lot like that might not matter. You know, he's just he, he they're playing at, at a speed right now, and they're playing with a determination right now that says that nobody's going to get in their way, even a team that is this as deep and as as ingrained in as many different le- levels of, of talent as Alabama is. And I think we've got our guest with us here for the afternoon, Mr. Anton Staley, the Black Red Sox fan. Twan, what's up, brother? What's going on? Sorry about it. I guess we had a little mix-up on the pen or whatnot. But yeah, oh, it's, it's good. Uh, oh, yeah, it's, it's all good, good man. It's, it's, it's all good. It's a new format, man. We're learning how to get it all together at one time. Oh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just kind of talking about the, um, you know, what's remarkable about Ohio State this year. It's how how good, how impressive it's been that they've just been the next man up all year and have just been able to seem pretty, in the late stages of the year at least, undeniable in a lot of ways. What do you get when you look at this Ohio State team going into Monday's game? I think they're very balanced. Uh, they obviously run the ball. I mean, they're not – they're not one of those teams that's gonna throw it like the air raid offense, but they like they like to run the ball, they like to pass the ball. They play solid defense as well. Their defense is ranked twenty ninth in college football. I know it's not it's not out like one of the best of all time, but it's twenty ninth in college football when you have hundred and twenty five teams out there say it's uh it's pretty good. It's, you know, I think a lot of teams would definitely take that. So I think I just see a well balanced team and you touched on like it's kinda of like the Nets man up. It kinda of reminds you of college football about 20 years ago when, you know, a lot of a lot of these programs had guys, like, stacked up just like that. If you got injured, you know, you would lose your job because the guy behind you may be just as good, if not better, than you. So that's what kind of reminds me of. Well, I think it's really been a, been a team that has shown the, the importance of having recruiting depth, though. Yeah. I mean, anytime you can push through with three quarterbacks and, and one of them being a freshman that just steps up and has a brilliant year, just a, just a fantastic year in light of the fact that he wasn't even supposed to see the field at all. He goes down, and then you have your third stringer go out, and it's just really the same thing over and over again. You don't hear much about Ohio State being what you would call a system team, even though Urban Meyer definitely has a style of, of, of attack that he has instituted everywhere he's went and has been successful with. Um, do you look at what they're doing and say that maybe Ohio State is a closet system team? Uh, well, everybody does a lot have a system, but the thing what I like about him and he showed this at Florida when he first got there, he's able to adjust his system to the type of player personnel that he has. And look at this particular job he's doing this year. I think you know he's catering it to the stress of Cardell Jones or JT Barrett when he was starting. Just much like when he was at Florida and they won the national championship his second year, you know, Chris Leak wasn't his guy. He wasn't his type of style of quarterback, but he adjusted his offense to cater Chris Leak, and he had Tim Tebow behind him. And it's kind of like, you know, it's it's a system, but unlike a lot of programs, like he's a, he adapts to the personnel that he has. 
So I think that really works for him. And he, in excellent and O-wise, you'll be hard-pressed to find a guy that's better than Urban Meyer. Well, so so looking at looking at that side of the ball, do you think um, do you think that that team has what it takes really to slow down this Oregon club? I mean, because they move the ball at just an insane pace. I mean, I, obviously, I think history dictates it a little bit, saying that you know you look at what Oregon has done in big games headed in. I mean, the numbers told you. I think there was something like zero and nineteen against top two teams in history. Um, you know, and then they go out and they put up the numbers they did against Florida State, who admittedly I think was a team that was kind of just playing with with, um, with house money for a little while, <laughs> most of the year, the way they yeah. pulled out some games. But all the same, I mean, it's still an impressive collection of talent that will send plenty of guys to the next level. Um, th- is this Oregon team different, or would they just catch the right team to start it off? I think um, this the Oregon team that I see now, as opposed to the teams that I've seen in the past, they're more physical. I thought the Oregon teams that were in the past when Chip Kelly was there, uh, Mark Helfrich, um, his first few years was very finesse team, and you had a team like a like a per se a Stanford who they had trouble with in the past, or an Arizona team that would just pretty much just bully them in the offense, the point of the point of scrimmage, like the point of the attack, the line of scrimmage. So I think this team is like not only they're fast and very athletic, they they're also attacking as well, and I think that's the difference between this Oregon team and the ones in the past. And they're also opportunistic; they they create turnovers, they they score points off of those turnovers. So I, I think that's really the difference between the Oregon team this year as opposed to the teams in, in the years past. So and all right, so you know, looking at looking at. Obviously, it all starts and ends with Marcus Mariota. I mean, he's the guy that makes that makes the entire system work there. What, if anything, can Oregon do to slow him down in order to pull the game in their favor? I'm sorry, Ohio State. Ohio State. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> um, well, you got to get pressure on him, and also you have to kind of, you know, bait him to, you know, disguise coverages. Sort of look. Um, they did the the Sims last week with Alabama. I thought they did an excellent job. Um, Amari Cooper is one of the best players in college football. And they they pretty much just, I don't want to say shut him down, but they made Sims go to other players on the field. And they're like, okay, we're not going to let Amari Cooper beat us. We're going to force Sims to make a throw and hope he turns the ball over. Now, of course, Mariota is a lot smarter quarterback, and he's a, he's a much better quarterback than Sims, I would say. But you're going to have to get pressure on him. I know – and kind of and get him out of his comfort zone. I know he can throw outside of the pocket, but you just want to make him uncomfortable. And you also also um, that could help Ohio State defenses. Also, just kind of slowing down the running game of Ohio State. And, and here's another thing that could really help Ohio State in their defense, and it's really their offense. Keeping they're having their offense stay on the field as long as possible, run the football, keep that Oregon offense on the sideline. Because the longer you do that. I think the the more rest you give your defense and you keep that high powered offense of Oregon's off the field. What do you what do you think is the obvious thing that when you look at Ohio State they have to do extremely well to not get overwhelmed by that Oregon team? Or, or before we do that, let's back up. What team what team do you see having the most distinct advantage in the game? Um. Well, if you look at it like kind of like from you know statistics wise on paper, you have to say Ohio State because they like Oregon's de- Oregon defense isn't you know very good either. They I actually give a lot of points and a lot of yards, 
uh, they they forced kind of like they did the Florida State last week. They forced Jameis Winston and they forced turnovers, and that's the, really the difference in the game. And you know, having their offense on the field, kind of like the the Phoenix Suns of basketball, just kind of like fast break on grass. I think what the difference is with this Ohio State team is like their defense is is solid. They're more balanced. So I would say, you know, to fa- if on paper it favors them. Now you don't know. You have a Cardell Jones who's a third. You know. Yeah, he doesn't play like a third string quarterback, but you just never know how people are going to perform under the light. So that, that's that's only the wild card in this. But if you look at it on paper, I think you have to give Ohio State the edge. Wow, really? So I mean, so if if you if you look at what happens here, you know, we we've seen in the history, you know, big quarterbacks hit national championship games and you know have that dropout. Do you think that it's a matter of fact that Marietta? can't play with that level of team, or is it just the fact that you think Oregon's won't be able to deny Ohio State from getting its own stuff here? No, I, I like Oregon. There's nothing – I really like Mariota. It's nothing that I, I think he won't do. I just like – I like the – you have to like the way Ohio State's playing right now. And the reason I like them in this game, part, partially because you have a guy in Urban Meyer again, you know, I touched on it earlier, I think. He's been in this stage before. I know, like I say, it's, it's overstated at times, like experience. But obviously, I think he's one of the one of the best coaches in college football. I know Nick Saban is probably is probably number one. This granted because of the the hardware that he has, but I think X's and O's wise and creating the game plan. And obviously, and here's the difference as well. Urban Meyer knows spread offense, like he runs them, like he he understands every single spread offense it is in college football. He's he's gone and when he was working at ESPN, like he he looked at Oregon's, he looked at you know. There's a lot of different spread off Nevada's, you know, such as, you know, et cetera, like different spread offenses. So you give him a week to prepare, I think, and, you know, he's one of the, like, the innovators of that type of spread offense with the read option and things of that nature. So you give him a week to prepare. I think Ohio State really has a, a really good shot of winning this game, and that's why I'm going to pit them. Okay. Well, then let's let's back up away from the teams and let's say playing in here. Um Let's just talk about the road to the playoffs. Um, now that we have the two teams that are left in the that are actually you know left in it. Period. What's your takes on how it all played out in this first run with the playoff? Is it everything that it was kind of hoped and built up it would be, or is there just or, or or is this just kind of getting the feet wet in it still? I think it worked out perfectly because had we not had the playoffs, we probably would have had Alabama and Florida State in the championship. Which you know you look at it now that both teams and both of those teams ended up losing. So I think you had I think the playoff worked perfectly. I show like it showed that it's success and you know the the ratings were just like off the you know charts. Like I think the Ohio State Alabama game was one of the highest cable television you know games in history. You know television. So that'll tell you like how much success it is. So I think people are excited, you know, even in the casual college football fans or the sports fans were excited just to watch, watch that. Cause you had two story programs in Alabama and Ohio state. So I think it's a success to be completely honest. And, you know, I'm looking forward, looking towards, you know, the playoff in years to come. Um, TCU made a hell of a statement. I feel like yeah. in, oh, in, in their, in, in how they showed up. And they took the opinion that they had been the last guy out. And, you know, they went out and made the type of statement that could strengthen the fact that people say it's still an inexact science that, that teams get in. Because, I mean, they looked more yeah. dominant than any team, I think, with maybe the exception of Oregon did against against Florida State in the second half oh, yeah. there. 
Um, what do you have to say for teams to say, for people that TCU supporters or any other team that fills that void in years to come to say, that you know, hey, we're still not getting our fair shot. It should be bigger than it is right now. What I would say to the, not specifically the TCU, but to the Big 12, crown an official champion instead of that co-champion thing because, you know, it kind of confused the people. And, you know, if you want to be honest, you know, Baylor beat TCU. I understand Baylor lost to Michigan State, and I get that. But, you know, it's hard to put a team that, you know, you you hard to put TCU in without putting Baylor in. You really can't do that. At least I don't think you could, and the committee felt the same way. So, in turn, and I thought Ohio State was playing really well at the time, so I thought they should have been in anyway. But it's hard to justify putting TCU in without having Baylor in because I think, you know, while they had the co-champion label, I think people, you know, you, you they they won head-to-head. So, you have to get an edge to Baylor. Like, it's just, you know, cut and dry. Like, it's that simple. And so, when you, when uh, I, I guess that you would give a vouch to them for being the team that maybe is, you know, the runner-up. Do you say TCU, after seeing all the other bowl games, is the, is the best team that didn't make it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think I think next year they're going to be a top five team. They're going to be one of the teams to beat in college football. But they have a lot of those players coming back. So you, you have a lot of those players coming back, and they're angry, and they're, they're hungry, and they want to, you know, get that t- bad taste out of their mouth. I think it's going to be – you know, they're going to play with an edge, and definitely the, in the Big 12, I mean, obviously Oklahoma's down, and Baylor's going to lose um, Bryce Petty and some of the players they have. So I think TCU is going to be the prohibitive favorite in that conference. So, and who's this? And I don't know, I don't know their non conference schedule as, as of yet, but, you know, just looking at it from who they play in the conference, I don't, you know, there's no reason to think they can't go undefeated. Okay. Well, looking at the team that, you know, a team that was later to come back strong, and they did come back strong, but, you know, ran out of gas at the end was Florida State, and now they watch, uh, you know, their star, the guy they built that championship around in Jameis Winston, lead for the pro ranks now. Um, you think it was the right time? Do you think it was time to duck and get out of, and get out of there before anything else was wrong for Jameis? Yeah, I think, well, not necessarily just because of, you know, off the field stuff. You know, I think it had a lot to do with it. I even said once once he got suspended for the Clemson game, I was like, he's he's gone. Like I heard people, like you know, friends of mine that work in Tallahassee um, in the media, they were saying like they they want like the president and people in the administration want him gone. So once I at that point, I was like, he's gone. Like no matter what happens, national championship, another Heisman, he's gone because I don't think the university really wanted to put up another year with you know all of this you know clouds surrounding him. But, yeah, I think it was time. I mean, he's he's not going to improve his draft stock. He may be, you know, a lot of people talk about Mariota and him being the number one pick. I think Jameis Winston, to me, and this is just taken on the field. I'm not talking about off the field or anything. To me, he's the best quarterback pro prospect that's in the draft. I know a lot of people like Mariota, but projected-wise, I like Jameis Winston more than I like Marcus Mariota. Now, when you look at the two and you look at the teams that are at the top of the draft, and I want to get back to Jameis a little bit more specifically in a moment, but who fits the bill best for the Bucks in your mind? Is it, is it Jameis for that team, or is it Jameis just simply because he's the best prospect available? Uh, I think you could go – I would probably say Jameis because I think I think he would benefit going to Tampa because when you have an experienced head coach in Levy Smith and somebody they can tutor him and lean on and, 
and, you know, teach them how to be a man and how to be a professional in the NFL ranks. And, two, I think with his skill, the Tampa Bay doesn't have a good offensive line, but Jameis can grow, and, like, he's very mobile. And they already have a really good wide receiver in Mike Evans. So you have the, and you have Vincent Jackson as well, provided they keep him. I don't know if they will, but you at least have Mike Evans there. And I think, like I say, I think they have – and also for this as well, they play in the NFC South, which is, let's just be honest, like it's it's not like <laughs> it's the, um, the toughest division in the world. So, it ain't you know, what it used to be. No, it's not It's not that. So you can come in right away. I'm not saying Tampa Bay is going to win the division next year, but you can come in right away and start getting victories. And, and who knows, you know, you might find yourself in the playoff mix there. So, it, you know, I think that's a, that would be a really good fit for him for none of different. I think Tennessee would be a good fit for him as well. But, you know, I think Tampa Bay would make a lot of sense, you know, especially with the Florida ties and, you know, I think the setup there and Levy Smith. And yeah, I think it would that'd be beneficial to him to go to Tampa. Now, how do you foresee him being received, though, once he does get to, you know, the draft process and he gets in front of these NFL teams, considering the fact of some of the things that have been questioned about his makeup? Do you think that that's more of a place by people that are on the outside looking in, or are there some legitimate issues there that could see his draft stock maybe tumble a little bit? Well, I think, well obviously, in the NFL draft, you're going to have these executives, and they're going to – they're gonna find out. They're gonna hey, our private investigators. Like they, they find out everything and need they need to know. Like they probably find out what kind of food he likes to eat and what type is his favorite movie. And down to that is set science. You know, not that it means anything in the NFL, but you know they find everything they out. They they need to know about a player. So I'm sure you know it's gonna be your teams that shy will want to shy away from Jameis Winston. But I think you know depending on the head coaching position and the makeup of the team. You know, and as long as there's no black marks on there, and I think he's going to be just fine because I think you you take it to the account, his on-the-field stuff. And, like, I think he's a leader. I think he's – his anticipation, his throws, like, you know, he, he's just, he's the best quarterback, I think, you know, as far as anticipating throws, you know, and he can move. He can – he's everything you want in the quarterback. And, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, gave him crap about the national championship game, but look at his stats. Like, he actually played pretty well other than the, the couple of turnovers that he had. So I think that I, – I really like him coming out. Like, so it's just a matter of, you know, some teams are going to be – it's going to be teams that are going to be scared from, away from him. It's going to be teams that love him regardless. It's going to be teams in the middle. But I think, you know, Tampa and Tennessee, especially Tampa is going to be looking to take a quarterback. And I think, you know, Lovey Smith will be, you know, he's going to take the best available quarterback and whoever he likes more. So I don't know if it's Mariota or Winston, but I don't think, you know, his, you know, history in Florida State is really going to be that much of a factor. Um, Looking at him going into the NFL, um, you know, all things considered, who does he remind you the most of? What if it's a guy there right now, or maybe a guy you know from the past? The you know the type of impact that he can make on a team, and what type of difference that he could you know a quick turnaround? Is he a quick turnaround guy, or is he a guy that you know you got to keep working around? Or you know in the quarterback league right now, you take a quarterback in the first round, you expect those instant results. And number one, I mean, you instantly expect for him to hit that kind of class that Cam Newton and Andrew Luck did with those instant results. Is he that type of guy? I think I don't know if he's an Andrew Luck type of guy. I think Andrew Luck is a once in a you know, you know it's once hard to find those type of guy. Yeah, once in a generation type guy. It's hard to find that guy because he's kind of like Peyton Manning. It's kind of the same thing. I think I think if you look at it, you know, he could be similar to a bit 
to Ben Roethlisberger, honestly. He, they're both hmm. big guys. They both can move. They, he has a very good arm. His arm maybe not as strong as Ben's, but I feel like young Ben Roethlisberger, like he could, he was able to move and you know he he was able to command. You know he he came into the league at a very young age. Really, his as a rookie, and really you know it kind of managed the Steelers a little bit. But eventually, he started to get better and better as a pro prospect and a quarterback. And eventually, like he's a he's all pro now. So. I definitely, you know, just kind of looking at it like, you know, as a skill set, he kind of reminds me of Ben Roethlisberger to a extent, a little bit. Hmm. I, I definitely could see that. Um, do you think that if if whoever goes takes a quarterback number one, a quarterback goes two, or do you think that the Titans sit tight with Mettenberger there and, and look somewhere else? Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of Mettenberger, but maybe they maybe they don't like any of the guys. I think, and maybe they. Maybe they draft the quarterback later. I have to figure they're going to take a quarterback. It may not be in the first round, but I definitely think they're going to take a quarterback in the draft because, you know, Mecklenburger, like, they took him, like, in the later stages of the draft last year. And it, why not have I, – I, my theory on quarterbacks is keep taking one until you have one. You may not have to necessarily take one in the first round, but if you don't if you don't feel comfortable about your quarterback situation, take one in the third round one year. If you see a guy that's in the fourth round, take one then too. Like until you have that guy that's your franchise quarterback, then I I think you keep taking quarterbacks honestly at least one of the years. In the spirit of that, I got two more quarterback questions before we turn back to that national championship game. Um, a team that took that approach that you're talking about last year was the Oakland Raiders taking Derek Carr who provided a steady hand for them all year. Um, you know, do they, they're sitting there right around the same range they were at the first round last year, of course, because they're the Raiders, and that's what the Raiders do. Um, but do you start to build around him now, meaning that, namely, do you, take a, do you start to protect him to give him more time to work, or do you say, hey, we're going to go and take Cooper. We're going to try to start putting weapons around him as well, too. I, I, I think, yeah, Derek Carr is the guy. Like, I, I'm obviously a Raider fan, so, yeah, I, I know all about him. <laughs> that was a lead. That was a leading um, question. But, yeah, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> as far as, like, I think they take the best available player, whether it's be Cooper or I know they really like Leonard Williams from USC as well. Yeah, whoever's on the – I think either whoever's on the board. Because my thing is about wide receivers and running backs. You can find them. Later on in the draft, and it's a and a lot of people say it's not a good receiving class. I kind of disagree with that. I think like there are other wide receivers that are very good. Jalen Strong from you know from Arizona State, who I really like. He may go from anywhere from the late first round to the to the early second round. Like he may not have the felicity that Amari Cooper has, but you know what? Like he's he could be a, actually a better pro prospect because he's big. He's he has great hands and he has size as well. I mean, so yeah, I really like him as well. So, I, if I'm the Raiders, like they have a lot of different needs. They need a pass rusher. They could use a defensive tackle, um, maybe a middle linebacker, and you know, definitely some weapons on offense. Running back, I think, and quarterback is fine, but they definitely got to get a wide receiver and a receiver and tight end as well. So, yeah, I think that's the way you have to go about it. Like, I, if Mark Cooper is there and he's the best player available, then I would say yes, they have to take him. Do you take the gamble on Ty Gurley? Uh, if he's there in the state, yeah, I, I actually say like I, I like if I'm Oakland and if he's there like in the early second round, and I like Latavius Murray too, but I think Ty Gurley is a game changer. Like I think he he could be one of the best running backs in the game. Like seriously, and he and the only reason he's going to slip to the second round because of his injury. 
If he's there, right. then it's something you have to think about. Like you can tag like a lot of teams tag team. Like look at Cincinnati with Jeremy Hill and Giovanni Bernard. You have a yeah. duo there. Like why not, you know, just have them tag team and you know, you have a good running back duo and take pressure off Derek Carr. So yeah, sure, that that definitely could be a consideration as well. Um, the, the one last college guy I want to ask about, and it's because, you know, his stock was just so volatile this year, and this is more close to home with me here, but I want to see what you think about it. Um, DGB, what do you think goes on with Dorian Green Beckham, who said he said he's not going to end up, he's actually Another not going to try right it receiver. Oklahoma. A lot of people think he may be the most talented wide receiver in the entire draft. I've heard people say that. Now, like, I don't know, like, He's somebody you can probably get, like, late first round, possibly second round, depending on what happens with the combine. But, yeah, I think I think he's very talented. He has size. He has speed. Like, he's like I said, had he played, he probably would have been a top 10 to 15 pick in the draft, like, no question. So, yeah. I'm really a big fan of his as well. It depends on, you know, one, who takes him, and two, who may be scared off by taking him. I, I think that, that situation around him echoes just really loudly to me about the one with Dez Bryant a few years ago, you know, where you saw him get out the mix and you knew the talent was there, you know, but the slide started falling in and the team that was committed to him in the end ended up being the Cowboys. I mean, and now they're reaping the benefits of a guy who I think has easily moved into the top three wide receivers in the NFL no question. if you look at the entire picture. You know, and and this is a really tough time to make that claim in the NFL with so many good talents, but he's right there among them. So is is that the type of guy that if you're sitting there at the the top of the second round and you see him get past 20, do you get in the play in the first round and take that gamble? Because, I mean, it could be Dev Bryant. It could be Mike Williams from back in the day at USC. You never know what that time off does for a guy, especially a big guy like like um like DGB. But, you know, all things considered equal to off field situations which are numerous, do you take that risk and try to grab that talent early on? It's certainly a high risk, high reward with him. Um it, you definitely I definitely think you could reap the rewards like taking him. I, I think like I say, I really think he's very talented and definitely one of the best receivers in the game. So yeah, I you know, if you need a wide receiver and my thing is, like, depending on your makeup of the team, yeah, I would definitely take him in. You know, you have a team like New England who always look for receivers. If you happen to fall down to the Patriots, you know, like the last part of the first round, just imagine him and Gronk for years to come. Yeah. It's kind of scary. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of teams, I think, that were played a little bit worse than they actually are. I mean, you look at a team like the San Francisco 49ers who are definitely in the market for a wide receiver. And yeah. you're sitting right there in that same type of range. You know, yeah. you, you it's going to be a few tough decisions for the St. Louis Rams to make. I mean, even though they're at 10, you know, that talent to, to try to get over it. It, it, it. It's really interesting. And a guy like that really shakes up the way you look at the board. But um, but let's get back to it, man, before I, before we, before I, I let you go. Um, national championship game, man. Tell, give me the story, man, and give me the outlook. What happened on Monday? Close game. I think really good offenses. I think the over-under is 75. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to get that high, but I do like um, it to be a high-scoring game. I'm going to pick Ohio State, like I say, simply because, like, I, I believe in Urban Meyer. I've seen what he's able to do, and I think they're going to win in a very, very close game. So I'll, I'll take the Buckeyes by a field goal in this one. Wow, wow, field goal game. So that means it's definitely going to play in Ohio State's hand a little bit more than um, – yes. you know, wow. Well, it, it, it would it would it would be remiss for me not to not to grab at least one thought 
from you here. Um, or two, I got to get two because you called one of them. Out. I know, I know where you're going probably with the Hall of Fame. I'm sure. No, well, I'm, I'm going to get that too. That, that there's two thoughts. That the first one is a is a double tier question. I got to give you credit first of all for number one projecting correctly the John Lester situation with him going out now and really becoming the face of the Cubs overnight and spearheading a lot of I think premature excitement about the potential, the immediate potential of that team. But all the same, a great signing for them there. So. I got to give you credit for that. Um, And then as well, Max Scherzer is still out there, man. What's going on? How is this this going to work itself out? I'm not surprised. Um, He's a Scott Boyd talent, so they're going to – he's going to eventually sign. I just think probably this month. I just think teams are waiting it out and waiting to see what goes down with that. But I'm not surprised he's still out there. Also, James Shields is still out there. So I think kind of like – I think one is waiting for the other. I think – when Scherzer signs, I think Shields may sign too. I think they kind of just filling each other out, see what the contract situation is going to be like. You, you feel any different about where you think Scherzer can land, end up at? Because I mean, I've I've worked the leads on this one pretty heavy, and I haven't been able to sort this out really. I know Boston, like they're going to get one of the pitch. I have a feeling they're going to get somebody, and. I think I know New York has been very, very quiet. Like the Yankees, like really, you know, like really ridiculously quiet. So I have to think they're going to make a play for somebody, and they they obviously need a starting pitcher. So it would not be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if one of the two teams offered Scherzer just a ridiculous amount of money. Well, eventually, if the carrot dangles out there long enough, you you got to go after it, and you got to be able, you got to add it if you sits out there. And I think the teams get that little uh, spring training's about to break. Let's yeah, get everything we can about get desperation. Yeah, my thing is now, like, yeah, you got spring training is going to start like in the month. Really, players, pitchers, and catchers are going to report, and you obviously want your starter there. So my thing is, the Red Sox are going for it now. You know what? Just go ahead and pay them. That's how, that's how I feel. If you if you paying people that much money and you trying to get the World Series like in the next year or two, just go ahead and go for it now. You know, I still think, even though they said they're not going to do it, I actually like Shields more for Boston than I do Scherzer because he, he has the too. kind of deal. He has the kind of deal that will fit into that window that they've signed all the rest of the deals on. You know, that five year, four year window. So I think that if you try to compete with this group of guys and you, you stay relevant as the younger guys get older, I think it's about a four year plan they're on right now before they have to go back to the drawing board again. And Shields fits into that well. I mean. A team like – just a team that's going to perpetually be pushing for it, like the Yankees, would be the type of thing team I would think would give the type of money to Scherzer, who's 30. You pay him for six or seven years, you know, that's running him past his prime. But, you know, you've got, yeah. you've got that guy there. So a lot, a, lot, a lot could happen. You know, still guys like Cole Hamels. There's a lot of teams that could decide to sit out this offseason and wait for Zach Grinke and Jordan Zimmerman and all those guys that are coming in next year too. So – Lot, lot to see. I, I, it's going to be interesting to see how it works out, um, you know, headed in the spring. And hopefully, man, by the around time spring training comes up, we can get up and recap on all of that. But oh, definitely. B- b- before I b- – yeah, you you were right, though. The Hall of Fame, man. Give give me your thoughts on the outcome. I'm not surprised. I wrote an article like I thought these would be the four guys getting in, so, and that's exactly what happened. I figured Schmoltz, um Johnson, and Pedro would definitely be shoe-ins, and I figured – Biggio would get in as well, just based on the fact that he was two votes shy of getting in last year. Um, Piazza, I think he's going to get in next year, obviously. Like, you have one guy that you know is a lock 
next year, and that's Ken Griffey Jr. Beyond I that, think he got two locks next year. Who who do you, you think um you think Hoffman's gonna get in right away? I think Trevor I think Trevor Hoffman goes in with about eighty percent. I think that him and Mariano separated themselves from the pack on the perception of closers. I think that they get the exception vote. I wouldn't mind that, and I would vote for him too. But I just you you have to, you know how to you know how the voters are. You know how to yeah. vote some of the voters are. So I wouldn't mind that at all. Like having him, I think he should be in. Like I would vote for him too. I just question. You know, you know the agenda of some of the voters. They yeah. like, you know, I, they may vote. They say, oh well, we're not going to vote for him. You know, because his first year, he's a closer. You know, yeah, you know, <laughs> a lot of the voters writers have an agenda. So that's that's I, the I only think, thing that I worry about with him. I think what really helps him is the fact that next year there's only one guy that is an absolute guy, and that's Griffey. Whereas the last two years has been multiple absolute. He, they must get in, guys. They yes. kind of divide up that. Even the guys that say, I'm going to leave a guy off because other people vote type thing. I mean, I'm fully expecting Griffey to scrape in there with about 98%, which allows a few people to get cleaned up next year. I think Piazza slides in as well, too. And I think that it allows for a little room for Hoffman to get in. I, you know, maybe 80 is high. Maybe he's closer to in, in the 70s, 77-78. But, uh, you know, I, I think that is there. I think it's an opportunity. I think I, him I and think... Mariano – separated themselves from the pack and the perception of closers. I, I, I agree with that. And I think Tim Raines is going to get – I don't think he's going to get in next year, but I think his last year on the ballot, I think he gets in then, 2017. I think that's when you'll see him get in. Because let's face I don't know how you feel about this, but me personally, I feel like he is – or at least he was doing his era the second greatest leadoff hitter of that era. Like, I know Ricky Henderson really overshadowed him, but – you know, it's hard to take away from a guy that averaged 60 stolen bases from uh, for 11 years. Oh, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's crazy. I mean, he went to that stretch where he uh, where he averaged over 70 for three years. He's a bad yeah. champ, you know, two-time champion. He just had a lot of different ways of success in his career. So there's a lot to be. And the Expos, he played right. a lot of his career. I feel like that's why, like a lot of people didn't get to see him in his prime because he's playing in Montreal. Had he played in New York in his prime or one of the bigger markets in the in the state, I think he would have been in. I just think a lot of people didn't really see him in his prime, you know, when he played in Montreal because, of course, TV was much different than it is now. Yeah. yeah. One of the great nicknames, one of the great multi-purpose nicknames of all time in, uh, <laughs> in rock rain. So, but, Twan, man, anything you need to uh, – you can put out for folks to check out before we get out of here? Um, well, you can check out my work. Uh, well, you can find me at Twitter at Black Red Soft Fan. You can also check out my work at, you know, at BlackRedSoftFan.com. And, you know, I, I'll have this weekend I'll have an article talking about, you know, who I think is going to get in the 2016 Hall of Fame and who I think should get in there as well. So you got to check out for that and some football-related stuff as well. And obviously I'll have a national championship preview on Monday. Absolutely, man. Well, hey, when we get closer, when we get closer to the end of this pro season and start to get into a little bit of spring training and get get closer to draft combines and all that type of stuff as well, too, man. You got to get back in there. We can have another one of our buffet style shows like usual. Oh, no problem, no problem. You just, just you know where to find me. So it's nothing but the same. Absolutely, brother. Well, hey, man. Thanks for coming through here once again, man. Y'all can check Twine out on Twitter at, at Black Red Sox fan, man. Appreciate you making it out for me tonight, brother. All right, then. You take it easy. Yeah, you too, man. Good friend of the program, always available to lend his insight. That's Anton Staley, the Black Red Sox fan of it. But staying in tune with 
the of what we had here talking about Hall of Fame, I had to bring back one of the guys that gets one of the best responses from from me every time he comes on, and 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 it's always a good rehab that comes from him. Um, we're gonna take a little stroll down history's lane a little bit here, looking at the Hall of Fame, and then looking at the image of the Hall of Fame itself outside of just baseball players here. My father, Terrell Whitener, on the line with us here as our, our resident baseball living historian who's seen more of it than, than than I have and can offer that different type of perspective that is needed as well. What, what's going on tonight, man? How are you? I'm good, man. I'm living. Can't complain. Happy to, happy to be out here, man. Thanks for making it. Not a problem at all. So, all right, you know, we have these debates every year. You know, you 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 go on your war path against the Hall of Fame and what's become and how the vote's working out. Uh, but I would argue to say I'm just going to put this out there. You can say what you do. For the second year in a row, the writers got it right. All things considered, everybody being created as close to equal as they can this year, the writers got it right in who went in this year. What are your immediate thoughts on this year's Hall of Fame class? I'm happy with this year's Hall of Fame class. I'm, and, and I know you're probably going to fall off the chair to hear me say that. I'm, I'm happy with this year's Hall of Fame class. But I don't think they got it right last year. They just missed one person last year. You know, but I'm, I, I have nothing bad to say about this year's class at all. Well, let's talk about the guys that got in this year before we okay. go and look at the rest of the ballot a little bit. Let's start at the top. Randy Johnson. Uh, eighth highest vote total of all time gets in. You know, a 300-game winner, nine-time strikeout king, uh, five-time Cy Young winner. I mean, that's just a resume. That's just the tip of the iceberg with the resume. Um, you know, in my life, easily the greatest left-handed pitcher I've ever seen, The most in- one of maybe the most intimidating sports figure I've ever seen. I think he goes right up into that class with guys like Lawrence Taylor even in, in, in their sport that put that type of adjustment, just changed the whole – energy of the game when he was out there. Randy Johnson, man, give me a, give me some hot takes on him. Well, I mean, you know, he was he was one of those must-see players. Um, one of the really cool things about the Hall of Fame uh, voting this year to me was, you know, this was, what, our second year of Hall of Fame class that we kind of shared together. Um, you know, I mean, they, they were people that we just had to see. And whenever Randy... Johnson was in St. Louis, and he was going to pitch during that series. Um, you know, I mean, we made a we made an effort to make sure that even if I couldn't see him because of something, that you got to see him. So, I mean, he was he was you just had to see him. If you if you love baseball, you just you you had to go. You saw it once, and you wonder if it was real. So you had to go back the second and third time to see if you you know what you saw the first time was really believable or not. Uh, and yeah, and, and I remember the first time I saw Randy Johnson was when he was with the Astros when he first got traded over to the National League from the Mariners during that push that the Astros were making, and he came over with something like ten and one in the right. National League when he came over, right. and it was just unfair. I mean, it was right. just literally it was unfair. And I remember the bigger trash can the bat that night was Randy Johnson versus Mark McGuire. And, right. I mean, and Randy just went after him. I mean, you just didn't right. see guys go after McGuire like that. And there was nothing he could do. There was nothing anybody could do. He was just the most over at the peak of his game. He is the most overwhelming pitcher I've ever seen in my life. And I, I, I've seen some pretty good ones. But this is left-handed or right-handed. He was just phenomenal. And I would venture to say that in his era, he is, whew, man, it's tough to split hairs between him 
and Greg Maddox and Roger Clemens and, um, you know, his classmate into the Hall of Fame, Pedro Martinez, but that just says a lot about him, that if you're making an all-time rotation, Randy Johnson's going to get a lot of conversation about it. Well, yeah, and he did it differently than all those other guys. You know, I mean, he he just, I mean, it, it just says either you did it or you don't. I still think Trevor Jones had the best uh, answer to a question of what was his approach to Randy Randy Johnson, and he said, I just guessed where it was and swing as hard as I could. That's it. Yeah, uh, yeah, then that's it. And, 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 you know, Randy Johnson was a guy that went through a journey to get it figured out. I mean, he didn't show up in the league and was just knocking guys dead. The stuff was always there. But due to his height, you know, and then just due to honing all of that together and figuring out the right way to go about it, this is a guy that, you know, who was just as scary because you didn't know what was going to happen. He set right. that reputation just, in place more than – I think that the only guy you, – you look at the guy that's his, probably his contemporary on the other side of the mound being Nolan Ryan, both of them right. showed up like, there's the stuff, but I don't know if it's going to get me or if it's going to get the catcher, and I don't know if yeah. the catcher knew either. Yeah, I'm, 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 not, I'm not digging in on him. So, you know, I'm kind of going to stand in there, and I'm kind of going to give this the best effort I can, but I'm really not sure of it. And then they so, figured it out, and then it was ridiculous. Okay, so looking at that, you know, he had that big slider, big fastball. You know, he had stuff. I mean, it was just there. He was letting the ball go so damn close to home plate <laughs> due to how tall he was. It wasn't much he could do left or right-handed. Um, the polar opposite of him, however, but may have had probably had the best arsenal of anybody that went in this year was Pedro Martinez. Um I mean, just one of the most unique pitchers of all time in just how many ways he got it done. I don't know if anybody at the top of their game that in the last half decade, I mean, I'm sorry, the last half century of baseball was better than Pedro was in 1999, 2000. Well, sure. I mean, that's what he did. One of the coolest things about pitching is that, you see so many guys that do it a different way. You know, nobody was more cerebral than Maddox. And 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 maybe nobody got as much out of their physical skills as Pedro did. And that's you – know, I think that's the greatest compliment to him. Um, and he just – you never felt like he didn't give you everything he had every night, which is all you can really ask for as a teammate all you could really ask for as a fan. So I think that was the coolest thing about Pedro is you just never felt like he cheated himself, he cheated his team, or he cheated you as a fan. When you when you look at Pedro, he was a guy that had the raw stuff coming up. You know, what was just so mesmerizing about what he did on the mound was how easily he could blend between top-notch raw stuff, you know, that fastball that was 97, 98, and it was throwing three different versions of it anywhere he wanted to. But then he was breaking off that rabbit curveball, and then obviously the best pitch was the changeup that just was yeah. unfair to be able to throw with that type of stuff. I don't know if there's a guy that I've ever seen that was able to go get people more ways than Pedro could at any point in an at-bat. Well, the other thing about it is, is he never pitched a game with the same pattern. He pitched the game with the same stuff, but he never pitched the game with the same pattern. And and I think that was that's what helped him be excellent for as long as he was excellent. Because, you know, you figure that sooner or later people make adjustments on pitches 
but one of the toughest things for hitters to do is make adjustments on patterns, you know, on or a lack of a pattern. And I think that's what he was so excellent at. There were nights on, on certain teams that he'd come out and he's just going to fastball them to death because he knew he, his stuff was just good enough to get him out without showing him so, too much. Because he kind of thought that, you know, for two or three weeks later when he saw that team again, he wanted to go after them a different way. So, I, you know, I think that 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 was part of his mastery. If you looked at all of his games, you couldn't see a pattern. You know, you 2-0, this is what Pedro's going to throw. Yeah, you think Change so? Change up. He might throw change up 2-0. Yeah. You know, and just change the he whole might. course of their bet. He might. He might. And, and and I think that the thing about Pedro that was really was most interesting about it was that while we focus on those three or four pitches that he threw, he could throw about seven of them if he wanted to. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he he had a, he had he had a split finger, he had a slider, he could throw pretty much anything he wanted to. I just he's he was probably the guy that could inspire the most intimidation while really commanding the ball out of his hand better than maybe anybody except for Maddox. Because he could throw that power stuff, he never walked anybody. I think he he had under 100 walks and over 500 strikeouts over the course of, of two years, which is just uh, that's just you you might not ever see that again. But you know he could he could do it. He could still make people have to stay honest at the plate, even though they had no idea where the ball was going to end up or what it was going to be, because he could literally command the pitch anywhere that he wanted to. Um, just a fantastic player like that, and I didn't ask this question about Randy Johnson because it's just I, I don't think it's possible to compare anybody to him, but out of the other people that you've seen, who does Pedro compare most closely to at, at the top of his game compared to theirs? Um, wow. That's that's an interesting question. Uh, somewhat to uh, Juan Marshall. Mm. Um, he jumped out to me. Uh some of when he was actually right, but this was a very small window. For those two or three years that Doc Ellis really had his stuff together, mm. you know, it, it, it was similar. Um, there was a guy, uh, a, another very short window, but with the same uh, kind of approach and, and effectiveness for a short time, Jim Murkett Grant, the pitch for the Minnesota Twins, um, you know, uh, somewhat – uh, similar to that, and uh, you know, I mean, I think that's a good, you know, sample, you know, in, in a in a certain way, because uh, those guys just really went after you, and you know, I mean, and they gave it everything, and they stuffed. Uh, really, kind of, they didn't look like they stuffed, and Pedro never looked like his stuff. You know, it's like, wait, wait a minute, he can't be throwing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it, and it was. Bad. I mean, five eleven, five eleven top. I don't think that he was that tall. I, Matt, you remember time, the first time the we one saw time him? I, yeah. <laughs> the first time we saw him, we thought he was a bad boy. Yeah, I mean, the 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 time that I met, um, the time I met Pedro Martinez, he was walking down the street with Vladimir Guerrero when he played for the played played for the Expos and. And I think no. Mel, no, I think I think it was Mel Roas or or, or okay. Dallas Perez that was with him. Okay. And okay. I was uh, probably twelve, and I was pushing up yeah. on the same height as him. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, but you know, he he is the guy. 
he was the guy that he was on the field in the streets. I mean, he walked with a swagger. He was he was he he talked he talked stuff to everybody there. Not bad stuff. He just joked and messed with everybody. Right, you know, right. and then and was just he was that guy. He was he was the quintessential guy you gave the ball to. He turns around and tells you, Don't worry about it, I got it and you just know it. Because that's right. who he was. I mean, he was that guy and this was back when he was you know, this was during the year that he won the National League Cy Young. Which is again, right. gets lost in the mix how good he was with the Expos as well too. I mean, they, they, he didn't hit the Boston and then just automatically become this guy. He went to Boston as that guy. He just lived out those years there. He would have done the same thing, if not m- more, in the National League as well, too. Yeah, he was. He I'm was. Glad, glad that he got out of out of the National League side of things because that would have changed the fate for the Expos, although they had the deal. I mean, they, there's no way they could have kept him. But um, another guy, uh, the next guy up, unique career. Uh, one of the most – one of the most unique careers, and maybe a guy that gets maybe underneath the respect level that he deserves the most, that's John Smoltz. You know, he was always looked at as being the third guy in the rotation with Glavin and Smoltz. I'm sorry, with Maddox and Glavin. You know, and, and then he, you know, he goes out and crafts a career that is at the top of his game as a dominant of a power pitcher that the National League saw probably outside of um, Brandy Johnson during that time. And you know, but still, goes in, gets 100, only guy ever 200 wins, 150 saves, uh, moves into a unique niche that nearly nobody else except for maybe Dennis Eckersley can really claim as far as being an all-purpose pitcher. Um, John Smoltz, go back on John Smoltz. You know, what do you remember about him? I uh, didn't want to see him. Uh, you know, and the interesting thing about Smoltz with, with the Braves, um, and I don't think most people are going to remember this, the Braves was always looking for somebody to be that third wheel, even though they had John Smokes. Did they want Benny Nagel to do it? Okay, yeah, well, no, Nagel couldn't do it. Could, did they want Steve Avery to do it? No, Steve Avery couldn't do it. Did they want Kevin Millwood to do it? No, Kevin Millwood couldn't do it. Even though they never were going to get rid of Smokes, but they were always looking to improve on what Smokes was doing. And, and I mean, so that was one of the interesting things about, about Smokes. You know, Smokes was one of those guys that, that, I mean, he really didn't sneak up on you because, you know, Maddox, Gavin, and Smokes was just that uh, automatic slump that, that, that hitters got to go through sometimes. Oh, man. You know, in, in, oh. in the league. And, and, you know, so it was just like, so he was just always going to be the guy. You know, let's just say you got lucky and you and you lucked up and you beat uh, Maddox or you beat Glavin. And then you say, well, golly, we're going to go ahead and sweep the Braves. No, you're not. That's never going to happen. No. Well, That's you never... know what, and I'll say this. I will say this for John Smoltz, and this is one of the things that I think you had to he, – John Smoltz was one of the guys you had to see to realize how good he was. He's one of the guys that if you didn't watch during that era and you look up in 20 years, you just don't know. You just don't appreciate how good John Smoltz was. Maybe you can turn on MLB Network and watch what he did in the postseason, you know, where he really made his legend with those 15 wins, you know, what he did in 91 against the Pirates and then later on against the Twins. And then what, you know, just how dominant of a postseason pitcher he was. But to see John Smoltz was to know. You know, and, and, and he was the guy that, in my mind, 
in a rotation with the great, with, with probably the best pitcher of his era, one of the absolute, the smoothest pitcher of his era in, in, in Tom Glavin, and the, the greatness of Greg Maddox, he was the stopper. Smoltz was, was the stopper. Even if Maddox and Glavin had won, if, 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 if Glavin lost or if Maddox lost, the series was still going to go in their favor because you were going to lose to one of the other two, and Smoltz was the stopper. He was the guy that was the heart of that whole pitching staff, even though he probably was the least acclaimed one. Right. And the thing of it is that if Maddox and Glavin beat you, you were going to get swept. He oh, wasn't giving that game away. That was it. He was not, I mean, you know, because a lot of times in, in baseball now, you know, people have this polite conversation about people. Oh, he's a great competitor. He's a great competitor. You know, Smoltz is one of those guys when they say he is the most competitive person I ever met. You really believe that, you know, because when I was looking at some stuff, um, I was just even looking at his, his, his real brief the one year he was with the Cardinals. Okay, he set the record. He struck out seven guys in a row, you know, with nice. the Cardinals record. And then in the last game that he pitched in the playoffs, he struck out five in a row. Yep. So, I mean, and, and he knew he was done then, and that's still what he did. Yeah, I mean, so, he, I think that what was most impressive about John Smoltz, number one, going back to it, was how many different versions of him there was. There was the young guy that just had that power. You know, he was throwing those right. fastballs. I, I, there's very few power pitchers ever that had the command to beat you on the outside that Smoltz did. But he was throwing 95 miles an hour in the black, and there wasn't right. nothing you were going to do about that. After a day right. of watching Maddox beat you underneath your knees all day, Glavin make you wonder about where, how in the hell it is the ball is still on the plate that far away from you. And then you see Smoltz beating you with that slider outside and then busting your chops inside with that fastball. What do you do? I mean, I right. think that their success – was as tied together in the diversity of their styles against each other as it was individually. Great pitchers individually could have led staff by themselves their whole careers, but being associated made them the great staff that they were, right. the great pitchers the, that they were, I should say. And the amazing thing about those guys, and we might not ever see it again, um, is the fact not in the that money, not in the money era of today. Right, you couldn't right. afford to have because, three guys because, together that long. Those guys, those guys were so competitive with each other. Uh, you know, I, I don't think they could have left each other because nobody else would have stoked their fire, like yeah. coming right behind each other, coming right behind each other, coming right behind each other. You know, so I, I, it's an it's an interesting era, and, and you know me, I, I wasn't convinced that he was going to be a first ballot for a lot of reasons, and but I'm kind of I'm really glad that he was. And then a guy that didn't make first ballot, Craig Biggio, gets to do. I you know. When I wrote about Bizio the last two, three years, I said he was the hands-down best second baseman in the National League in his career And, and after Ryan Sandberg retired. You know, there was Alomar in the American League. There was Biggio in the National League. And Craig was just the most hard-nosed Hall of Famer that I ever saw. You know, a guy that was willing to go and do anything. He could hit anywhere in the lineup. I think he was a brilliant number two hitter. I mean, he was just the ultimate table setter at number two, regardless of what version of the Killer Bees you're looking at with him and Bagwell and Berkman and, and Derek Bell. You know, he was just did so many things right, competed every night, stood in there, played hard, played at three different positions, 
you know, could hit the ball over the fence, would steal bases at his prime. I mean, there was nothing you could really do with him in his prime about that. C- call back on Craig Vigio and the things you remember about him. Well, he was going to find a way to beat you if you put him in a position to beat you. And, and, and it wasn't really anything you could do about it. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, and I hope you don't, you know, drop the, the phone or the mic or whatever when I tell you this. Um, and, and I hope your, you know, your listeners don't, don't like just say, okay, we don't want to hear from this father anymore. But, but there was sometimes that Craig Biggio gave me the same feeling in certain situations that Pete Rose did. Wow. It's like, come on, I don't want him up in this situation. No, well, this is what, I mean, what he did, the same thing he did with Rose, in my mind, was that there was nowhere you could throw him because he was going right, to find a place to right, put the ball, and he was right. going to hit it hard everywhere it went. Right. No right-handed hitter ever had more doubles than Craig Biggio did. Right. Nobody. And right. all those doubles came with them trying to beat him in on his hands, and he turns the ball down the left field line. I mean, he was right. just I – mean, he just stayed in. He competed. He, he wasn't scared of the ball. He would take the hit. He stayed out there all the time. He took that catcher tough that he came up as and just took it everywhere. And it just kind of baffled me that people could look at him and say Craig Biggio wasn't a Hall of Famer two years ago. I just don't well, understand it. You know why Craig Biggio didn't get in two years ago? Because he had such a steady, strong, even – Killed personality that they knew that he could take the disappointment. Now you know. Now it, it was such. I mean, there are sometimes when you can be too nice a guy, that you can be too steady, and sometimes people take your kindness for weakness, and sometimes your kindness and your quiet nature for indifference. And the and and the baseball writers took his steady, quiet nature for meaning that they could slight him and it wouldn't bother him, and they were absolutely right. He couldn't have been any happier if it would have happened two years ago than when it happened the other day. Well, and I, that's I think what that, makes it really good. And I think that being on the other side of that, being a guy that does write the game, is I think that it was also about the fact that Biggio's steady nature was prolating his play. You know, you just don't remember the fact that this guy – put up all of these numbers, and you look at him, the thing about it is he didn't play to hold on. He wasn't an accumulator. I mean, he but, put up numbers throughout his entire career. But, but there, there were so people who believed that he hung on. There, there was, this, there was this, false, this false, this really negative vibe out there that he held on to get that 3,060 hits, where he was contributing to that team, you know, by leading by example, by helping them transform, and all that other kind of stuff. Now, the biggest thing that I'm mad at about, you know, with, with Craig Biggio, uh, you know, other than those doubles on good pitches in key spots in games, you know, against the Cardinals, was the fact of the matter of it is he seriously considered coming here and changed his mind. And I believe it cost us a World Series. Uh, you know, because I, I, he was going to be playing second base with rolling in them, and that would have even been wrong. I, Biggio, Biggio is one of the rare guys, especially in the crossover era that he played in, that stuck it out with one team the whole way through. You know, and, and that's that's a rare yeah. thing to see. It's, it's a rare yeah. thing to see. I, I, in my mind, he's the greatest Astro of all time. Um, you know, he, he 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 went through the trials. He 
he did all those things. He stuck out. He really defined that team, played with a lot of different versions, was absolutely pivotal to the peak of that team. Um, You know, when you look at the second base that he played, you know, in the last 50 years, there's just not a lot of guys you can say did it much better. You can make a – you're probably right if you say Ryan Sandberg. He was more dynamic and just made a bigger overall impact. You can make a case, um, you know, you can say Joe Morgan. You can say Robbie Allen Wong. That's probably about it. I can't think of too many other guys that are better than him there. And maybe not Morgan. It's tight. It's tight. It, it, it's tight, but but Joe was special, and, and BGO was too. Yeah, yeah. Joe was special, and BGO is too. You know, so the guy. Oh, that's I, a few guys we got left off: Kurt Schilling, Mike Messina. Um, just throwing names at the board: Fred McGriff, Jeff Bagwell. Obviously, Mike Piazza made great strides. I don't think there's any doubt that he makes it over the hump next year at, at this point. Um, uh, Tim Raines, uh, Carlos Delgado, Gary Sheffield. Of that class of guys that were in there, who are the guys you feel the strongest about that should have that should have went through, that should have an opportunity to go through? Well, well, one is I think it's a shame that Delgado uh, doesn't get to stay on the ballot. Um, I, I just think that given some time, people would appreciate him. Um, I'm I, I'm shocked and disappointed at the low number that Sheffield got. He's a much better player. He's a Dick uh, Allen of his era, though. Yeah, and, and, and the one of the things that I've kind of come to appreciate, especially since my favorite player of all time, Dick Allen, only didn't get in the Hall of Fame by one vote, which is the only way that I ever go to Cooperstown. But, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that, that, that I believe that Rock will get in. Um, it, it will be by the skin of his teeth in the absolute last year, but he'll, he'll, he'll get in. You know, on that, and I also be glad that Piazza get in because I'm so tired of people being punished by stuff that we don't know anything about. You know, so that that's kind of stopped. Where do you sit in the in the in the other the, the other pitchers that are on it, like Kurt Schilling and Mike Messina? You know, are those guys Hall of Famers, or you know, or is the fact that they're still kind of getting skimming numbers tell maybe the story about the fact that? It's really being shown now with guys like Pedro and guys like Maddox and 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 Smoltz and Glavin and and all those guys coming up that these were really the cut of this era and these are just the really good guys on the other side of them. Well, but I think the fact that those guys got in, the fact that you got all these pitchers in uh, over the last two years could possibly help those guys. Um, you know, because I mean they're you know they got a little window now. Um, to start being examined a little bit more. Um, I don't. I don't think there's any chance that Schilling sooner or later won't get in. Messina, um, I'm not so sure about. Uh, not necessarily based on a lack of merit, but just a lack of overall focus and 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 people who delve into um, people's numbers and careers like they should. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's up to guys like yourselves, you know, and 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 your colleagues to really uh, encourage each other to really study the game, because there's a lot of people with with votes that don't really study the game, and and there's a lot of different definitions of what a Hall of Famer is, and you know, and, and it's it's gonna it's, it takes some time to sort that out, you know, and so. 
I think Schilling is. Uh, I think Messina is worthy, but I think I think Schilling will get in before Messina will, because Schilling just had more big moments. I think Randy Johnson getting in will help Schilling, um, because I think somehow a little bit of the buddy system that we just saw with Smokes and Gravin and um, you know and those guys getting in will help. You know, it's wanting to have more of those moments. Um, you know, on that. So I, I think that, you know, will help uh, Schillen also. Because you better believe that Randy Johnson is going to mention Kirk Schillen in his Hall of Fame speech. Well, and I think he was also going to, he, he most vocally spoke about Edgar Martinez mm-hmm. getting in, really stumping for him and to make that bound as well, too. So it's an interesting thing as well, um, the uh, specialist, the specialist uh Perception. Uh, next year, Ken Griffey Jr. No reason to discuss that. No, yeah, that's please. that's 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 that's. I'm I'm setting the over under at at ninety seven five for Griffey to get voted in. I think so, that's I think that's strong. I think I, I think that's strong. Yeah, so the guy that, that got, he's the ultimate. What Griffey is is he's the ultimate power hitter who will be aided by the fact that he has always had the perception and the truth that he did it quote unquote right. That's going to really boost him up because, you know, I saw what happened with him, and that's just the, the nomenclature that's around him now. Um, the other guy, the other two guys that debut on the ballot next year are really show the genesis of a whole new era of the game coming into play, and that would be Trevor Hoffman and Billy Wagner. Um, where do you stand on that? What do you think about the, having seen the closer position evolve through the years that you've watched? Where do you see that, um, where do you see that registering in at? Well, one is I think Trevor will get in. Um, I, there's absolutely no reason for Trevor Hoffman not to get in. First um, year? Are you saying Trevor's first ballot? Yeah, yeah I, I think Trevor should be first ballot um, on that. Because, and the good thing about Trevor is Trevor comes before Mariano. So it's going to be very difficult for people who don't get in before Mariano. So I think Billy Wagner better get in before Mariano, or he's going to – or he might not get in. Um hmm. The the well, Billy Wagner itemizing Billy Wagner. You know Billy Wagner, who by measurables was the top power closer of all time, and carried an ERA that was almost a half run lower than Trevor Hoffman. Although he didn't have the massive save total that he did, he still crossed over three hundred. Um, you know what does it say? Does the closer should it only is the closer position still a young enough position that? maybe only the guys who clearly showed that pinnacle of reaching it, such as Mariano and Trevor, in the form in which the closer position is going to be recognized as, make it. The well, modern think, closer. The modern I, closer, I should say. I not Gossage and not, not Fingers yeah, and those guys. And Hoyt yeah, Willis. I think, I think that, that the closer position is matured enough as a position, a Hall of Fame-worthy position, that we will see uh, – you know, the, those guys get they do. Now, again, um, Billy Wagner is another one of those guys that people are going to have to pay attention to and really examine his career um, because uh, there's a lot of things with some of the, some of the, you know, I think with some of the voters. Um, you know, out of sight and out of mind don't help borderline Hall of Famers. No. You know, um, you know, being around and being on television and showing up on some of these panels and stuff, it helps some guys, you know. 
um, you know, I mean, you listen to them talk and they know about baseball and you go up and you look up their numbers and, you know, I just think it's like, oh, wow, okay, cool. You know, I think Billy Wagner is going to be very interesting to see what his number is next year. But the other guy that I'm really going to be very interested in seeing what his number is next year as a first-time guy is Jim Edmonds. Yeah, you know, Jim Edmonds, Jim Edmonds is a guy, man, that it, it, it's tough because, you know, at his very best as a St. Louis Cardinal and a few years as, as Anaheim Angel, he was easily among the best players in the National League. He topped 400 home runs. I'm sorry, did he? No, wait. He topped he topped 350 home runs. Right. Um, just an amazing defender. Highlight worthy. He's memorable because of the highlights that that he produced. He played on World Championship teams. He was always a successful player um, as a part of one of the great teams of his era in the Cardinals here. Um, but you know, center field is a traditionally very tough position to qualify through for, just due to the top tier depth at the position. I mean, when you start talking about if a guy's a Hall of Fame center fielder, you immediately start saying, you know, is he, how's he stack up with Mays and Cobb and Speaker and Griffey and DiMaggio yeah. and Mantle? And, you know, wow, that is that is already, <laughs> you know, then you have to go down to guys who are iconic, guys like Duke Snyder, you know, and the other, other folks that get in in that position. And it makes you really look at it and say, you know, what did Jim Edmonds, represent while he played, you know, 393 home runs, um, one RBI short of 1,200, a 284 hitter. He never led the league in any particular category, but, you know, I mean, you know, obviously. Except you know, for stealing home runs for teams at key points. I mean, eight, eight, I mean, eight, eight gold gloves is a lot. <laughs> right. That, right. That, that, that says a lot. I mean, that's a powerful I mean, number. Um, but, you know, here's the thing, though. If guys like Larry Walker, who is MVP, despite of where you played at, and Carlos Delgado, who were in those MVP races as well, too, aren't holding weight on the ballot. How do you really justify Jim Edmonds making it too far either? Well, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that he's going to make it because, you know, I have the sneaking suspicion that as more teams start to develop their own Hall of Fame, that it helps, it, it hurts the Hall of very good players, very, very good players become Hall of Famers because they say, okay, they're in the Cardinal Hall of Fame. That's good enough. Well, you know what, though? Writers, don't, writers don't, aren't concerned with that, though. Writers aren't concerned with that's, that. I mean, that okay. that's a completely separate – that's a completely separate because, I mean, okay. that's, a, that's, I'm, a, that's, I'm, something, that's something that's – I'm glad to hear that. I'm that's glad something that, that stumps – I mean, those Hall of Fames are things that are, that, that are stumped for by fans and fan votes. and You mm-hmm. know, that, 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 that writers – Team Hall of Fames have absolutely no bearing on what the decisions well, the writers I'm, make. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. I, I, I was always concerned about, uh, glad for them, but but a little bit concerned about the proliferation of. Uh, no, I, 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 I think they're, they're mutually. They're, they're, I mean, they couldn't be. They couldn't be much. They couldn't be much further apart in relevance from each other. Um, so it would be interesting. I would say that Evans probably comes in in the 20s somewhere. I would say Edmonds probably comes yeah, in. And I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with that to start. I think that's I'm a strong okay. showing that keeps you around for a couple of years, you know, and eventually yeah. you dissipate, especially with, the more, especially with the more competitive ballot showing up now with only 10 years to get guys in. Right. You know, and you have guys like, you know, Alan Trammell who is entering his last year and, and won't make it. You know, there's, um, you know, there's just a lot more urgency to vote for guys now that you want to make sure that your causes get in. And um, so that'll be interesting to see how that works out. But um, 
you know, looking at looking at this, one, one last thing I want to get into before we wrap up here. Um, it's a new era that's starting to come in now. You know, it, the, the stars of the 90s. The stars of the 90s are populating the Hall of Fame more immensely now. Even guys that played into the 2000s for, for a substantial amount of time as well, too. Um, looking back at that era, the 90s, the 90s to the 2000s, looking at it through the other eras that probably that preceded it, as the 80s guys are pretty much beginning to wash out now with the exception of Reigns and, and, um, and Trammell. Um, regardless of everything that's said about that era, um, how does the caliber of ball player in that time stack up to the, to the, genera- the, the generation or so before it, the 80s, 70s, 60s? Wow. Because um, I think it's safe to say that now there's a new generation a ball player that's in play now, that especially since Jeter has left as that last real star of the nineties. Right. Yeah, and, and now we're starting to see the 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 world game, you know, starting to to really yeah. take shape. Um and, and and that if I were to call anything, you know, this era that we've getting ready to get into now, it really is a world game, which is which is exciting. You know, I think baseball is something that does need, you know, to revive itself and uh, and to come in with different um, approaches and different looks, um, you know, as time goes on. And that's what keeps the game alive, you know, and the game fresh. So I'm just as excited, um, you know, getting ready to go into my 51st year uh, of watching Major League Baseball in person, God willing, I make it to opening day. Um, I'm just as excited now to see what's going to happen because there's nothing more fun than seeing, you know, what Trout's going to be and, you know, who's who's next um, and lining them up and letting them, you know, get chiseled into the, the side of the mountain, you know, along with all those other people because I'm one of those people to believe that there's room for everybody. You know, let let Mays and Aaron be Mays and Aaron, and let Bench and Morgan and Rose be Bench and Morgan and Rose and, and Smith. And, you know, let let Jeta and Jackson and, you know, and all those guys and Griffey be, you know, who they are. And, you know, and I'm so glad to see, you know, I mean, the Trouts and, uh, and the Kershaws and, you know, and all those kind of guys come on because it's, it's room for the game. It, it keeps it keeps you alive. You know, I mean, it helps me to be reborn every spring to to, to see a, a new season. You know, not necessarily going, well, you know, this will never be 1968. Well, okay, fine. Great. It's not 1968. You know, come on 2015. And so that's kind of the way I look at it. Absolutely. I mean, every area is going to have uh, it, it, it's just as much rewarding to see um, to see new guys crafting their legacies at the same time, starting to see some of the truly remarkable historic impact that Buster Posey's had to start to his career, where he's already factoring in. You know, seeing the promise of a Giancarlo Stanton come into play, watching just a historic run from Clayton Kershaw that is really on par with the things that we just celebrated from Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson. You know, um, you know, see improbable things like what Baumgartner did, teams, the, the fact that a team, like two teams, team, put that as the, stress that above all other things, like the Royals and the Giants, 
face off in a World Series. You know what I mean? There's always something there. You know, there's always something there while you still get to debate the things that <laughs> made the game um, uh, noteworthy for better or for worse, such as the fact that, you know, still debating the difference between 200 and 175 million bucks for a guy like Max Scherzer right now. So yeah. it's just a lot that, to, you know, I mean, and that's stuff I don't even let bother me because that's really none of my business what somebody decided to pay somebody. But what's really kind of cool for me is, you know, like when we, you know, I mean, almost every year we see the Giants, it seems like we have a game together with the Giants, you know, and, and there are times I just look at you and go, you know what, we, you know, over the last two years, you know, Buster Posey done went 9 for 10 at the games we were at, you know, <laughs> against the Cardinals. It's like, can we get him out? You know, and yeah, you just yeah. laugh a little bit, and, and that's just as much fun as me as a teenager sitting in the grandstand at, at Tiger Stadium watching a doubleheader between, you know, the Orioles and the, and the Tigers where in that doubleheader uh, McLean and Rowlich pitched against uh, Palmer and McNally. You know, I mean, come on, man. Yeah, that, I mean, that's and, – and, and it's just as much fun, uh, much different, you know, much different setting. You know, much different times, much different players, but it's still the game. You know. Absolutely. Well, man, uh, before we wrap up, I didn't ask you about. I got two more, two, two, two last questions. I didn't ask you. Compare John Smoltz against history. Um, just, just he's 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 just a stopper. No, I mean, stylistically, stylistically against another oh, guy. Oh, stylistically against another guy. Wow, man, he's really unique. Um, golly, I mean, he's different than Seaver. He, he, you know, Curtis and Jenkins, maybe a little bit. Huh. Um, um, Don Drysdale, a whole lot. Um, jeez, me. I tell you what, man. I tell you what. I mean, another guy that he really reminded me of was another guy that's contemporary with him, style wise, and the way they attack guys was him and Kurt Schilling. Him and Kurt Schilling were a lot of like, yeah, they were, they were. The really mean, those really mean splitters, and those, and the only difference is that Schilling would beat people up in the zone while Smoltz just decided to take them out of it. And 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 he was smoother. I mean, uh, Smoltz was smoother. Uh, you know, Sean was like Seaver. They they were max effort guys. Yeah. You know, and so that's why they they're a little bit different. You know, um, to me, um, there's a little bit of small. There's a little bit of small. There might be. There might be. There's a little bit of small to Felix Hernandez. Yeah, and they might have been a little catfish hunting in John Smokes too. Yeah, that's a good call as well. That's a real good call. That's a real a mix between. Ferguson Jenkins and Catfish Hunter is a pretty damn good pitcher. Well, that's, well, he's, a, that's a loss. <laughs> yeah, that's a loss. And that's why he's in the hall right now. Yeah. Um, um, and then lastly, man, I, it, it's so passe at this point, but, I mean, I, I, I don't let the point die. Barry Bonds. you got to be in the hall of fame. Um, you know, I mean, again, you wait till the end of the show to get me started on this stuff. And um, I, I just – I, I, the the incompleteness of the Hall of Fame, full of people with flaws, full of people with bad decisions, um, breaks my heart as a person that loves uh, baseball. Uh, to think that that 
that hall may not have Pete Rose, may not have Barry Bonds, may not have Roger Clemens, may not have Joe Jackson gives the Hall of Fame an asterisk and not their career to me. Mark McGuire, uh, some tough decisions coming up with guys like Alex Rodriguez, even though I know it ain't happening. It all depends. I, I think that the, in a, from a certain sense, I, I get a certain type of enjoyment from seeing the deliberation on styles, but I, I, I know in a much larger sense, it, it just, it's frustrating to see in any aspect of life decisions to try to revise history at any factor, you know. So if you could, in my mind, and I said it this year, and I did, I'm sticking by it. If you could vote for him for MVP, you could vote for him for the Hall of Fame, and that's all yeah. there is to it. So, well, yeah, but, see, the cool thing about Alex is Alex is going to build his own Hall of Fame. Oh, Alex doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. And, he, and he's going to put himself in. So <laughs> He's already cool. in it. He's, he's, yeah, a, living, he's a living legend. He's a living that's legend. That's it. That's it. Well, all right, man. Well, hey, appreciate you making it on here for me, man. Filling it in, making, uh, making that, uh, making making what needs to be known be known. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna look forward to it before I let you go. I know we kind of brushed on this. You had to think about it. Uh, who's gonna have the best Hall of Fame speech? Last question. Who's gonna get the best one this year? Yeah. Oh, Randy Johnson. Yeah, because see, because see, because see, I think. Um, one time I heard. Uh, Randy Johnson uh, on the uh, after uh, after the game show live from Shannon, and he was amazingly engaging. Uh, there there is so much more to him than the way he performed on the field um, really allowed, and I just think he's gonna blow it out the water. I really do. There's just a lot to that man, and and so I think he's gonna get a best he's gonna get a best piece because. You know, I think he could. I think he could fool around and have a Ted Williams moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he, he's definitely he's a, he's a he's an insightful cat, man, and I look yeah. forward to it. Uh, you know what, boy, Gil, I gotta do this. Uh, another guy that channeled a lot of smoke that we're gonna have this conversation down the road. And this is the great thing about baseball; you can do this all day. Roy Halladay was another was another guy just like smoke. Yeah, good one, good one. Nasty dancing stuff and a bunch of fastballs. Well, talking about the Hall of Fame debate when that comes up, yeah, let's wait, let's talk about that. Oh, one for he's, in. he's in, he's in, he's in. Okay, he's in. He he's he is universally considered to have been the best pitcher of the last ten years before Kershaw took over. Okay, he, he, right. he's in. Two hundred, two hundred wins. 200 wins is more and more becoming acceptable to be the mark in yeah, this, in this I, day you know, and age. And I, and I still believe that the no-hitter in the playoffs sealed the deal. Well, you know, the no-hitter in the playoffs, you know, you know, Cy Young's in both leagues. You know, he went on one of those runs like Pedro did over about two or three years where it was just insane. And he was a good soldier on some bad teams in Toronto for a yeah, long time. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah he's in. He, 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 he's, he's in. He's in. He was, he was everything you could ask for. But, but we could do that all night. Hey, once again, man, appreciate it. Not a problem. We'll, we'll most definitely do this dance again. Let's get ready for 51. Yeah, man, why not, man? Let's go for it. All right. <laughs> hey, brother. Bye, you, Bye. Once again, man, always good to be able to have that conversation, talk the game. That's what we're all about doing is talking the game, comparing the game, good old real conversation from the cheap seats. But that's brought us to the end of our road here. 
We'll be back next Thursday night. We'll work on some guests. Got a few people I haven't had on yet that I'm um, getting close to. I think it's about time to have them on, so we'll do it here. But um, on behalf of the National Gridiron Network and on behalf of myself, you can check out the work at uh, Cheap Seats, Please. You can find my column regularly at the Sports Fan Journal. You can follow the baseball-only work at I-70 Baseball. And for anything else in between, from dinner to anything to dinner to to lunch to Hall of Fame debates to trying to find out what it is that – what shoes I should wear that day, follow me on Twitter at the Cheap Seat Fan. So until next week, um, I will have word about what it's like up at Lambeau. That's going to be a good time. And um, getting ready to get into my first reporting gig of the year next weekend with the Cardinals. We'll go over that. And, of course, we'll have some folks come through and join the fray as well for a little while. But um, until next week, I'm your host, Matt Whitener. Thanks for tuning in once again. And um, look forward to reconvening with you shortly live from the Chief Seats. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.